Hello and welcome to No Character Limit. My name is Robert Thurk, and today I'm going to try doing something a little different. I'm going to make a bonus episode out of some of the feedback that I've received and some updates related to God in the Frontier that I wanted to share. This episode is different because I did not write this out beforehand, there's no document I share, and ultimately what I hope for is that if I get paid subscribers, I'd like to release regular bonus episodes like this on the different feedback I get or topics related to some of the things that I've talked about. Completing God in the Frontier was a big milestone for me, and it has been hard to get the word out to people who enjoy this long-form, research-based work. And I'm hoping that whether you're listening to this as the episode comes out or a year or two later, that you would consider supporting No Character Limit in any way that you can. There are a lot of different ways you can support No Character Limit, both financially as well as not. The easiest thing you can do is leave a rating or write a review, and the more ratings it gets, the more visible No Character Limit becomes. Also, any kind of feedback you'd like to share with me is a form of appreciation in itself. You can always email me at nocharacterlimit at protonmail.com. I also currently have a Mastodon and Reddit account for social media. I know those aren't the most popular platforms, but with all the different things going on with social media platforms like Twitter and Facebook, I'd rather not be a part of them. Even now, with what Reddit is going through with its API situation, that's made me have to look at that website a little differently as well. But most importantly, you can support No Character Limit by telling someone else about it who might appreciate it. That is the greatest compliment that I could receive. But there are also the financial ways that you can support as well by a single donation, if you want, of any size that you choose. I have a couple of different options for that on the website, but as well as a monthly subscription. All that can be found on the No Character Limit main webpage. I just want to remind you all as listeners that those who provide any donation, even a single donation of a dollar, will receive a PDF copy of one of the writing pieces I've done of your choice. Currently, I've only shared my short piece, The Forging of Humanity, which is episode two on No Character Limit, and God in the Frontier, which was my 12-part series that I just finished. The PDF copies have a lot of pictures and images that I've collected that I really think add to the experience in a way that you can't really get by just listening to what I've written. 
And if you decide to donate monthly with a subscription, you'll be able to get to listen to new episodes earlier than what is publicly released to everyone else. And if you join the largest subscription amount, I'd like to create more exclusive bonus episodes just like this one to those members. So in a way, this episode is a teaser for what you'd get more regularly if you join the No Character Limit monthly subscription. Regardless of whether you like, rate, review, subscribe, donate, or even just listen, I appreciate that you've chosen to give your time to listening to my work. Before I get into this bonus episode, I want to let you know that my next book that I'm going to release on No Character Limit is coming very shortly, and I'm currently working on getting the episodes up on my site right now. It's going to be a long one, even longer than God in the Frontier, but I also think many of the episodes can stand alone as well. I try to find natural stopping points so that each episode can stand alone, but when looking at all the episodes together, it comes to tell something even greater. If you do subscribe, you'll be able to get access to this new series sooner than what my release schedule will be. Even more, I'm also working on a couple of different works that I want to release on No Character Limit after my next book, but they are going to take some time to research and write, and I share all this because I want you to know that there is a lot more content coming, and if there is any way that you can help support No Character Limit, it will help get the work done faster and better for not only more episodes in the future, but hopefully more frequent releases as well. But for now, please enjoy my first bonus episode, which is going to be a reflection on feedback and subjects related to my book, God in the Frontier. So having started No Character Limit all by myself, I've had to find unique and interesting ways to try and promote my podcast. And one way I've done it is to try and share individual episodes in different subreddits that I think they might have a connection with. So, for example, I posted my episode on spiritualism and the Chautauqua Institution on the Buffalo subreddit. And it got a lot of interesting responses. I also posted on the Rochester subreddit the episode I did related to the growth of Rochester and the episode focused on a shopkeeper's millennium by Paul Johnson. 
but some of these comments helped me really reflect or look into new things that were still closely associated to God in the Frontier, but are things I didn't touch on in my book. And one of the most profound links that were shared in one of the comments was a documentary called Unseen Tears that I highly recommend anybody watch it. It's only about 20-something minutes long, and it was about the Thomas Indian School on the Cattaraugus Reservation, as well as another similar school in Ontario, Canada. This all relates to my episode related to how the United States started spanning westward and how land speculators, as well as the United States government, worked together to take land away from the Native Americans, particularly in my series, The Haudenosaunee, and put them on reservations and actively worked to subvert any kind of treaties that they've made or annul them, while the United States government either didn't act to help the Native Americans or they worked against them. A lot of Native Americans then were disrupted and some children were taken off of their reservation or at least put into these boarding schools where eventually they had to stop learning how to speak their native language and try and do what they called kill the Indian and save the child. They essentially removed any kind of cultural connection to that child's past where they had grown up up until that point and tried to Americanize them and acculturate them into the United States. The documentary Unseen Tears is very powerful because they actually interview older adults who once attended the Thomas Indian School, which was originally called the Thomas Asylum for Orphaned and Destitute Indian Children when it opened up in the mid-19th century. The state would essentially determine what would happen to children of parents they deemed unfit to raise them. And while its origins allegedly respected teaching the language and culture, eventually the state took over and all of that was gone. And there is a lot of reports of abuse and neglect that took place. Although the documentary is really good, it definitely is emotional because of the things you hear about what happened to them while at the school, but they end the documentary in a way that I thought was really hopeful and inspiring. They interview one man named Elliot Tallchief, who really takes his time to articulate his thoughts on the question of what a government apology would do. And Tallchief says this, quote, So it'd take a long time to undo, and I can't say that it would ever happen, because to heal the apology from the government that allowed this to happen... I would say that it would never apologize. And what good would a hollow apology be? 
That's how I look at it. For an apology would have to be sincere. And how could it be sincere if it came from a guy that never went through the experience or was the one behind it? It was before their time that it started. So how could they be apologetic towards what they did to us? End quote. And the beautiful thing about the documentary is, is that they have his daughter there with him. And she says, quote, Hearing what he suffered through was a tough pill to swallow. I mean, he was a five-year-old boy, a little boy. Imagine your five-year-old being taken away from you, or you at five years old being taken away from your mother. I mean, how would you feel? I couldn't imagine being taken away from my mom and dad at five years old. End quote. But as they pull the camera away and you see the daughter sitting next to her father, Elliot Talchi says, I would have never let it happen. I would have fought. This documentary, which was done by Ron Douglas, reminds me a lot of the recent Supreme Court ruling about the Indian Child Welfare Act, where Congress attempted to right the sort of wrongs that took place, like at the Thomas Indian School, where children were taken away not just from their parents, but from their culture, and made to feel ashamed for being who they were and where they came from. The couple who was trying to upend the Indian Child Welfare Act was not native, but they wanted to have full adoption of two native children because they ended up loving them very much and helping raise them, but it was the Indian Child Welfare Act that got in the way for them. And while it has been an impediment or hurdle for them, the idea that Native Americans shouldn't first have the ability to consider extended family or even other people within their tribal culture, adopt them so that they could remain within the culture that they came from for the sake of a pair of white parents to be able to more easily adopt children that they would like to adopt would have been the wrong move for the Supreme Court to make. However, the majority ruled in favor of the Indian Child Welfare Act, and from what I could see on Native American forums, this was celebrated. I also share a lot of good resources all throughout this episode, but there is a book by Keith Burek called The Thomas Indian School and the Irredeemable Children of New York. There's also some primary resources in the show notes that include pictures of Thomas Indian School as well as some documents. And the person who shared this documentary, they also suggested to check out Gunnunduggan, the only New York State Native American historic site which preserves one of the largest Seneca villages and demonstrates Seneca culture. They also suggested to attend Treaty Day, which is open to the public and is commemorated by the Haudenosaunee every year. Something else that I wanted to share as a part of this bonus episode are the religious group known as the Shakers, which I kept out of God in the Frontier 
because it was getting a little long and the shakers technically were in multiple states but they are worth mentioning due to the similarities they have to other groups particularly the oneida community or mormonism I actually went out to Albany last summer and visited the Watervliet site, which is called the first Shaker settlement in America. The Shakers are a different organization than the Quakers, but both got their names from the way that people moved their bodies when they felt that they were caught up in the Holy Spirit. And in the 19th century, this was common regardless of your faith. Even staunch conservative Calvinists would begin to often lose control of their body when they felt the Holy Spirit take hold of them, just as it did to Charles Grandison Finney. The Shakers really put a big emphasis on community and coming together. When I went to the Waterfleet site, I saw the communal house where they all came together and danced in this big room. And if you see pictures and drawings of what the Shakers dancing was like, there is a lot of spinning that is going around, and you could understand how somebody could almost come out of their body. They're being physically exerted, they're going around in circles, they're holding hands, they're in a large group, and this was the way for them to bring about the Holy Spirit for the whole group and to kind of get a little bit of a high going while celebrating God. The Shakers are unique, though. They started from a woman known as Mother Anne Lee, who had lost children of her own, and it left a pain for her that likely led to the Shaker belief in celibacy. She likely wanted to protect other people from having that pain, but In that same way, they were never able to truly grow their community, despite always trying to help everybody within the community, because having children was against the rules for the Shakers, and ultimately it led to the closing of all their communities. I believe there's still some small Shaker communities out there, but They are another one of these powerful 19th century religious movements that took place in upstate New York and elsewhere. And like the Oneida community, they tried to come together, be self-sufficient. And they are most well known for creating their furniture, just like Oneida was well known for creating things like the Lazy Susan or their flatware or the Victor Mousetrap. This ability to create something to sell and support the community while at the same time remaining a community close together, everybody following the same, not just laws, not the laws of New York State, but moral values, which is what the Oneida community and the Shakers thought they were doing. This is what stands out most to me about groups like that. They had this desire for universal love. 
They wanted everyone to feel included and they wanted to be a part of something that was more intimate than the growing abstract structure of government rule. And communities like the Shakers and the Oneida community, or even the Mormons, they stood in direct contrast to things that were like happening in the city of Rochester, for example, where the individualism of evangelicalism was taking hold. And ultimately, Rochester was more of how the nation as a whole went, as opposed to groups like the Shakers or the Oneida community. And I just found that it was this aspect, this communal aspect, that seems so quaint to us today in the 21st century, and how yet it is something that seems almost innate in human nature, because we do want to take care of everyone, and we do want structures that make sure people are all loved and cared for and sent on the right path. And how the only way the United States was able to grow was by cutting off that more communal mentality and putting the responsibility more on the individual and less on the collective. And it turns out that Mormonism or the Shakers or the Oneida community are not unique or stand out, but they were incredibly common. And that's what led me to understanding a lot of these other communities that popped up with this utopian vision. Just to show how prevalent these utopian communities really were, you have to look into a guy named Charles Fourier, a French philosopher whose ideas were just sweeping America at the time. There are countless utopian societies that were started under his founding principles that didn't really have a lot of foundation in actual government principles, but a lot of people loved his ideas so much that they started communities in Ohio, Texas, Kansas, Illinois, Massachusetts, and other places. Fourier was a firm believer in women's rights, and he was said to have coined the term feminism. But naturally, some Fourier communities also popped up in upstate New York, right in the Burned Over District, and one of them was led by Rochesterian Benjamin Fish. And Benjamin Fish was another one of these Hicksite Quakers, which I explained it in God in the Frontier when talking about Isaac and Amy Post, who were the first individuals to really give a platform to the Fox sisters, and they really helped get the ball rolling on spiritualism. Hicksite Quakers deviated from Orthodox Quakerism because they believed that they shouldn't just stand by when wrongs are happening, specifically related to slavery. A lot of Quakers actually broke off from Orthodox Quakerism and 
wanted to be more active in ending slavery and the abolition of slavery and taking more action, not just speaking up against it, but actually doing something to end it. And Benjamin Fish was one of these Hicksite Quakers, and so were the Posts. And he was a part of the Western New York Anti-Slavery Society with Frederick Douglass, the Posts, and even the cousins of Susan B. Anthony. And he was also an active participant in the Underground Railroad. In this episode, I really thought it was important to talk about as well how these social movements of the 19th century, such as the abolition of slavery, the women's suffrage movement, really also have their roots in the Burned Over District, as well as related to these religious revivals and these religious breaks. So here we even see Quakerism fracturing between the people who will speak up and say something is wrong, but not do anything to get in the way, versus people who speak up and say something is wrong and actively participate in trying to stop the wrong. So Fish takes the ideas of Charles Fourier and he begins another utopian community east of Rochester called the Sotus Bay Phalanx. And he even bought the land from a Shaker community that went and moved elsewhere. Fish's Sotus Bay Phalanx attracted basically two types of people, and it was pretty popular at first. One type was liberal Christians, the sort of which who were abolitionists or women suffragists, but they also ate meat and they usually broke from traditional Christian practices. The Posts kind of were in the same boat. While they did not live in Fish's community, they did support it from their place in the city of Rochester. But there was also another group that was attracted to these foyer communities, and they were non-religious or even atheists who were called freethinkers. Freethinkers also supported similar ideas such as women's suffrage and abolitionism, and they even counted Elizabeth Cady Stanton as among their members. The things that freethinkers thought actually dovetailed a lot with spiritualism and their beliefs, because at the time in the 19th century, especially after the Posts have given a stage to the Fox sisters, they believed that there was a science behind spiritualism, even though today all of that science has been debunked. But at the time, organizations like the Society for Psychical Research were developed, and they were meant to do just that study spiritualism in a scientific way, and many scientists of the time were supportive that spiritualism was a true scientific phenomenon. And the fact that spiritualism first gained traction in Rochester helps show why the ties between free thinking and spiritualism were so close. 
You can almost imagine the discussions on the metaphysical in 19th century upstate New York homes, where the likes of Quakers, Methodists, and freethinkers all mixed their ideas together with a rugged individualism that came with the frontier lifestyle, where the freedom to form your own beliefs without tradition was made possible because they have cut ties with their lives back east or across the Atlantic Ocean. So in Fish's Sodist Bay Phalanx community, unfortunately, just like in most Fourier communities, things began to break down relatively quickly. One of the problems that happened was that freethinkers usually were vegetarians, while the liberal Christians were meat-eaters, so what they were going to eat or grow or take care of constantly was a point of argument for them. And then there was the ever-divisive issue of working on the Sabbath, which land speculator Josiah Bissell in Rochester worked so hard against and continually lost. Those who were not devout Christians wanted to work on Sundays, and they wanted to continue with their business. In Fish's community, devout Christians were making formal complaints against freethinkers who were working on Sunday, and it caused people who allied with both sides to leave the community. On top of that, Many people didn't have the necessary skills to make the community successful. So, even though a lot of people were initially attracted, there was not enough skills to keep the community running and growing. Which makes other communities like the Shakers, or the Oneida community, or the Mormons, all that more impressive. It only took about two years for Benjamin Fish's foyer community to fail. There was another foyer community in Skinny Atlas, New York, that lasted slightly longer, but they too ran into the exact same problems as Fish's Sodus Bay Phalanx, and ultimately closed down due to gridlock and the breakdown of community. So... That link between the free thinkers and the spiritualists was something I never really encountered on my initial research on God in the Frontier and I thought was interesting. Also, when I did post about spiritualism, I got a comment that talked about a podcast that came out solely dedicated to spiritualism, specifically the spiritualist community in Casadaga, Florida. And the podcast is called Ghost Church by Jamie Loftus, and it is nine hours of content just on spiritualism, which just goes to show how much deeper you can go into any one of these topics. You know, I talked about the evangelical conversions in Rochester, the Oneida community, spiritualism, Millerism, Mormonism. But if you just take only one of these topics, you can continue to go out and learn more and more. And even with what Loftus covers, it is not nearly complete. 
but she does have a lot of interesting things to share, and I learned a lot from her podcast as well. One of the things I really liked is she did a great job of talking about the cultural appropriation of Native American and other cultural beliefs related to spiritualism. And she did this by finding actual Native American culture from the area because the spiritualists at Casadega, Florida, did not have any connection to either African or Native American spiritualism, which would have influenced a lot of the things that they do. There's even a really offensive idea that a white man has a spirit guide of a man named Seneca who guided him to help make Casadega successful. And I like that she took the time to look into this and report on this, because I also felt that with going to talk about something like the religious revivals in upstate New York, you couldn't really have that conversation without recognizing what it was happening on top of. So, just like I did in New York, Loftus takes the time to understand the Native American culture in Florida. Casadaga, I guess, is a lot like Lilydale. Both are these spiritualist centers, and Casadaga and Lilydale are two of the largest in the country. I also like that it's clear she did a lot of research for her podcast and had read multiple books, and she references a lot of her research throughout the podcast. She's also a comedian, and she makes you laugh as you listen to her podcast as she gives funny and insightful, genuine reflections on her experiences at Casadaga. And this is what I love about two different people who research a singular topic, because you're able to now compare and contrast perspectives on what is going on with this topic. While I came forward with certain perspectives, Loftus helped me see things from a different point of view, specifically on the nature of Harry Houdini, who I really lauded and got in the frontier. Loftus's opinion of Houdini was that he was more hounding spiritualists in an unnecessary way, and she mentions the book featuring Mina Crandon, Houdini, and Arthur Conan Doyle. She talks about how these spiritualists, whether it's Crandon or Conan Doyle, they weren't really trying to harm anyone. One perspective that I really liked that she brought was about the story of Florence Cook and Sir William Crooks, which I do cover in God in the Frontier a little bit more in depth than she does, but she brings up the point that Florence Cook, when it was found out that she was faking being the spirit of Katie King, that she ultimately would go on to become poor and die. Whereas Sir William Crooks, who, even though his reputation took a hit when it was found out that Cook was a fraud, was still able to maintain his reputation and standing, despite the fact that he staked his scientific reputation on endorsing Cook's apparition. Loftus also points out that Maggie and Katie Fox also died without any money. This was what happened to women who tried to go it alone in the 19th century. 
But maybe one of the things I appreciated most about Ghost Church was that Loftus went to Casadaga and tried to immerse herself and really give genuine feedback on a personal level of what her experience was like in the community. So she covered Casadaga like I cover Lilydale. So between us, you kind of get an insight into both communities, and they seem to largely operate in a similar way. And I really respect how Loftus recognizes the sacredness that so many people put into spiritualism. And she suggests at the end of her podcast that so long as nobody is being preyed upon, that there's no harm in people having these spiritualist beliefs. And I really appreciate that perspective because sometimes we want to have an argument to be right just for the sake of it, but we should also consider who's being impacted by these things. And from Loftus's point of view, she sees a lot of harmless things taking place. Another thing about Ghost Church is that Loftus goes into the story of the Fox sisters, just like I do, and really our stories mirror each other very well. So I felt like I did a good job sharing the Fox sister story because a lot of it matched. But I also learned a few more things about the Fox sisters by listening to her podcast, more about Mina Crandon and what Houdini subjected her to in order to prove that she was a spiritualist and not a fraud. And I even learned that Andrew Jackson Davis, that Poughkeepsie seer who helped the Fox sisters get a name after the posts, has a prominent place in Casadaga as well with a building named after him. One of the things I feel like I covered more was on Maggie Fox's big reveal, as well as Harry Houdini's fight against mediums in Congress. Those, I think I gave a little bit more detail than Loftus did. Loftus also acknowledges the sense of community that spiritualism brings to this group, and despite having dwindling numbers, that spiritualism has endured. She recognizes that there is something here that is humanly universal, particularly when she brings up other older cultures outside of middle-class white America that have practices in the forms of spiritual crossings that are far older than the 19th century fad started by the Fox sisters. She really makes it a point to show that there should be some more respect for these other cultures that hold these spiritualist beliefs that date much older than the Fox sisters and that there is something special that is happening there. And she uses her own personal connection to her uncle to really drive home that point. But there are also areas where I differ from Loftus's point of view on Ghost Church despite appreciating her different perspective. So, for one, she goes into the history of Arthur Conan Doyle and Harry Houdini, and how they had a rift grow between them as a result of Conan Doyle's wife, which I didn't realize this, but she actually claimed to have communicated 15 pages of perfect English by Houdini's non-English-speaking mother through the automatic writing trick, and this 
deeply troubled Houdini ever after actually fracturing his relationship that was a friendship with Conan Doyle. Loftus kind of dismisses Houdini's feelings about this, like he's a bit of a jerk because he only missed his mother, but it is true that he used this as his own personal reason for desiring spiritualism to be real. This was Houdini's thing. He wanted to be in communication with his mother. And how he said that he would give up a large share of his earthly possessions for a genuine word from his departed loved one. So you can imagine how Houdini felt when Arthur Conan Doyle's wife claimed to be a medium communicating with his own mother and getting 15 pages of something that he knew was not true despite being told it was perfectly true. And everyone, including Houdini himself, acknowledges that he was not above this in his early years either, especially being a poor Hungarian Jew who was willing to do a lot of things to make ends meet, which included portraying himself as a medium. And it's likely that the moment that his good friend's wife, clearly with intent, deceived him, was what helped him come to the conclusion of how manipulative the practice was. In God in the Frontier, I point out that Houdini even mentions the likes of Theodore Roosevelt and the actress Sarah Bernhardt as believing in mediumship and supernatural abilities by humans. It was only an older, more mature, financially stable Houdini that stood before Congress and outed mediums from everywhere. And while Loftus celebrated the women mediums, she did not mention, for example, Rose Mackenberg, who helped Houdini and went on to help point out fraudulent cases of spiritualism even after Houdini's death. Loftus gives an impression that Houdini was just a buzzkill to spiritualists, or a tryhard, but he readily admitted that he could've, and did, pull the same tricks, but he was honest about the deception occurring. While Loftus acknowledges and points out plenty of dishonest deception in Casadaga and in spiritualist history, she always leaves the door open that someone might be having a true, genuine mediumship experience. But when talking about her own personal encounters, Loftus admits that it wasn't likely these things were any more powerfully impactful than maybe a motivational or inspirational speech. And she even says that if a medium she saw called her up later and admitted they were a fraud, she wouldn't ask for her money back because she just liked the experience. And I was a little disappointed with her having a focus of women standing up for themselves or making a name from the, for themselves in a male-dominated society that she would have featured someone like Eleanor Mildred Sidgwick, who, to me, feels like she just never gets enough credit when discussing spiritualism. 
Sidgwick went so much further and was able to get positions of leadership in both education and in the Society of Psychical Research, even during a time when men dominated everything. And Sidgwick still had the courage to speak the truth about spiritualism while still staunchly supporting women's rights. She stood for what was right, not just for what was profitable. So my conclusion is a little different than Loftus's conclusion in Ghost Church. While she feels that there's not too much harm going on, despite the cultural appropriation of Native American beliefs, and despite the common practice of deception, I instead then move into my next chapter, which was dedicated to the Chautauqua Institution, which I feel is a much better communal model than something like Lilydale or Casadega. But I think it was an excellent podcast overall. I would definitely recommend it to anyone who is interested in spiritualism, and I love that there's a couple of different perspectives that we come at it from. I still remain really impressed with the Chautauqua Institution overall, and having watched and learned a little bit more about it since releasing God in the Frontier, it just has a lot of good, strong, foundational principles for anybody and their moral beliefs. The founders, Miller and Vincent, they believe that if democracy was going to succeed, that they had to have an educated electorate, and they also believe that the church had some responsibility in that, which is not something I feel like I see as much today. And Chautauqua is just a really unique place. It is a very natural setting because if you go out to Chautauqua, you are not really close to very much anywhere. There is still a lot of undeveloped areas around the Chautauqua Institution in Lilydale, for that matter. The closest city is Buffalo, and that's still quite a drive away. And so it reflects the frontier very similar to how it was in the 19th century as well. And they really focus on a spirit of fellowship, not just religious fellowship, but of the human mind. And they do a really interesting job of balancing a lack of change, such as old traditional styled homes, slowing down of life, such as putting limits on where cars can go, or even having things like a paperboy calling out and selling a newspaper on the grounds, while they balance that with a constantly changing program of ideas, lectures, acting, singing, music, art. It's really a place that you can go and expand your mind without the typical limitations that you today often run into with religion. Usually, at some point in a lot of different religions, there's a place where exploring a certain topic becomes off-limits or wrong, but in the Chautauqua Institution, they really talk about a wide variety of topics, and they bring in such important and powerful people, regardless of belief and background. For example, in a documentary on the Chautauqua Institution, they have 
the Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor talk about how it's an honor to be asked to speak at the morning lecture. And even the way that they do their lectures is interesting. They have big centralized lectures, but they also have medium sized and small lectures where the lecturer is even able to interact with the audience. To me, there are so many good foundational principles in the Chautauqua Institution that even though it's maybe not as diverse as it could be, it's a model that I really can't find an equal to anywhere else. And just due to its proximity to Lilydale, only 20 miles away, I can't help but compare how the two communities go about working with the people who come and visit them. I feel like you just come away with a much richer experience in the Chautauqua Institution, whereas at Lilydale, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors and not really knowing what's true and what's not. Also, when I was sharing God in the Frontier, somebody was hoping that I would talk about Benjamin Titus Roberts and his wife and the start of the Free Methodist Church. Now, Methodism was born out of Anglicanism back in England, and they had a very centralized form of authority in England as well as the east coast of North America. But as the United States pushed out westward, they would be some of the first to get some preachers to go into a brand new community, and Methodist churches were some of the first churches to grow in the frontier in the United States, which is why they became the most popular religion of the frontier by the middle of the 19th century, especially in the burned-over district, and especially in Rochester, which embraced the evangelical spirit over Calvinism. The looser structure of Methodism that didn't just happen only on Sundays, but could happen any time during the week, appealed to the loose structure of the American Western frontier. But free Methodism was an offshoot of the Methodist Episcopal Church, and Benjamin Titus Roberts really started to speak up about some of the problems that he was seeing with Methodism as he traveled around western New York preaching the religion. He was critical of his church because he wanted to ensure pews were free to all worshipers because in order to worship they had to pay, and he wanted to reform Methodism rather than start a new religion because he didn't want to contribute to extremism, whereas you see places like Mormonism or the Oneida community try and start a brand new religion. Roberts tried to toe the line of reforming Methodism without breaking from it. He was a strong advocate for abolition. He rejoiced for the Emancipation Proclamation. He opened a mission in Buffalo and fought for free churches. He forbid members to own other humans, and at least one slave-owning member freed his slave as a result. 
In the 1860s, after the North won the Civil War, they called for the amendment of the Constitution to include civil rights. And by the 1890s, he called for women to be preachers before it was allowed. Roberts bought a tavern, built a new school out of it, and called it the Chilai Seminary. And today, it's called Roberts Wesleyan College. He ran an evangelical magazine called The Earnest Christian, and he spoke out against secret orders that were happening around the year 1850, which I'll get into a little bit more deeply. This is not the anti-Masonic movement that I talked about in God in the Frontier, but there was another time where secret orders and oaths started to become a thing again in around 1850, and Roberts said that oath-bound secrecies can lead to evil, and he held that position despite the popularity for it. In a lot of ways, free Methodism embraced the spirit of the more radical frontier Christianity that was found in the burned-over district of upstate New York, and even is still pretty liberal for Christianity today. One free Methodist minister called Matthew Hill even wrote a book called Embracing Evolution, How Understanding Science Can Strengthen Your Christian Life. But free Methodism, despite in the 19th century supporting abolition of slavery, women's suffrage, and more open ways to be included in the church, the free Methodist church still considers homosexuality a sin, and they will not marry same-sex couples despite being open to allowing them in their church. They also believe abortion is a sin from conception except for certain medical reasons, and so their more radical views really have been dialed back in in the 21st century and are more aligned with other Christian religions today. It's interesting how the Free Methodist Church will have one of their ministers write a book about embracing evolution, but still consider homosexuality a sin, despite genetic connections in people's sexuality, and not really having a choice in who they're attracted to. But one thing I kept coming back to when I kept thinking about this bonus episode is how central Rochester, New York was to so many of these movements, as well as Isaac and Amy Post, who I initially brought up in God in the Frontier, who helped the Fox sisters come to international attention with their spirit wrappings. It turns out that they just keep appearing in just about everywhere, as I already stated earlier, they helped support Benjamin Fish's foyer community, and they were also Hicksite Quakers broken off from their Orthodox Quakers because they wanted to do something about abolition. And this whole region is filled with people who broke from their traditional religion. Isaac and Amy Post, Benjamin Fish, Benjamin Titus Roberts... So, while some groups like the Oneida community or the Shakers started their own religion, 
It seemed like that was only one step further than the Hicksite Quakers or the Free Methodists did, where they still wanted to be attached to their traditional denomination. So when looking more into Isaac and Amy Post, I realized there is a huge connection to the Second Great Awakening in the Burned Over District and the social movements of the time, particularly the abolition of slavery and the women's suffrage movement. And by digging into all that, I found a lot of really interesting information that are all slightly connected and all relate to God in the Frontier. So I'll start with telling a little bit about Isaac and Amy Post, who, like I said, were Hicksite Quakers, and they wanted to do something over the question of slavery. They were not going to stay with the Orthodox Quakers who weren't going to do anything, and they ended up in Rochester to live out this lifestyle that they felt was closest to God. Together, they held small abolitionist meetings in their home. And they helped found the Western New York Anti-Slavery Society, of which Benjamin Fish was a part of. And they also hosted a lot of reform lecturers who came through the area. And they stayed with the posts, including abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison, suffragist Susan B. Anthony, and abolitionist Sojourner Truth. They were the first people Frederick Douglass came to when he showed up in Rochester to start a newspaper called the North Star, and he stayed with them, despite at first other locations being unwilling to lodge him at all. The Posts even helped support the North Star, and their son worked for it. And it's worth noting Frederick Douglass's impact on the city, I will not do it justice here, but I did want to share some of his connection into this culture of the time. Douglas is also known as the most photographed person of the 19th century, beating out even that of Abraham Lincoln. And in a documentary made by the city of Rochester called Rediscovering Frederick Douglas, Dolores Jackson Radney says, quote, Douglas saw with photography a way to be in charge of his own image, to be in charge of the images around him, so that those images couldn't dehumanize, couldn't make you less than, and they could also do just the opposite, empower, and make people see you in a different light. End quote. By being the most photographed person in the 19th century, Douglas ensured that his image came across as he wanted him to because at the same time, usually depictions by white Americans usually had some kind of racism ingrained in drawings. In this way, Douglas made sure that people saw him as he wanted to be seen, typically with a serious or stern look on his face because what he stood for was very important. Douglas lived in Rochester for 25 years, and he published the North Star with another influential black leader, Martin Delaney. The North Star had the saying, quote, Right is of no sex, truth is of no color. God is the father of us all, and all we are brethren. 
for Delaney's part, he was as fundamental of an influence on the abolitionist cause as Douglas himself. He was one of the first three black men accepted into Harvard, but he was forced out by a racist white faction within the university. Delaney also is considered the father of black nationalism, and he was one of the earliest supporters of the Back to Africa movement, and even personally went to Liberia and Nigeria to establish treaties with local chieftains to help make the movement possible. Delaney came back, however, with a personal invitation from Abraham Lincoln, and he served in the Civil War as the first field officer of African descent in American history. Frederick Douglass said of Delaney, quote, I thank God for making me a man, but Delaney thanks him for making him a black man, end quote. Delaney also, surprisingly, was a Freemason, and he was a part of the oldest African-American Masonic organization. So, Frederick Douglass and the Posts worked together to hide runaway slaves as a part of the Underground Railroad, where the Posts would hide as many as a dozen runaway slaves at once. In an obituary of Amy Post, it was said that she never turned anyone away and always provided them with material goods and a safe place to stay. But this wasn't something that Frederick Douglass and the Posts and Benjamin Fish only did when it was easy. They also did it when it was hard, particularly when the Fugitive Slave Act was enacted. And in order to really help understand the situation in the middle of the 19th century, I ended up diving into a little bit more on Thurlow Weed, who I talked only briefly about in God in the Frontier. He was a huge supporter of the Brown faction in Rochester that was, if you remember from the podcast, initially split between Colonel Nathaniel Rochester and the Brown family. But he must have been liked enough by both factions to be sent to Albany because he helped ensure the city of Rochester in getting its first bank. And Weed was one of the biggest advocates of the anti-Masonic movement, despite initially being the one who declined to publish William Morgan's book, and then went on to the Batavia printer where he ended up disappearing. Weed only actually involved himself in the anti-Masonic movement after Morgan's disappearance, and it's probably fair to say that he was the primary reason why the anti-Masonic movement grew so big. Weed was a printer who used his newspaper to blame Morgan's disappearance on the Bucktail Republicans and the Rochester clan because they were all Freemasons. And it was actually Thurlow Weed with a young Henry B. Stanton, Elizabeth Cady Stanton's husband, who saved the rowdy working-class 
theater that the wealthy of Rochester abhorred by throwing a special performance there. Weed was actually heavily invested because he personally owned stock in the theater. So Weed was involved in a lot of the early divisions in Rochester. But as the leaders of Rochester mended their differences in the wake of the Finney revival, Weed became a Whig, as many of the other Rochester elite did as well. And Weed remained firm to the cause of abolitionism, and ultimately moved to Albany. But he also learned from the failure of the anti-Masonic party that he was foundational in starting, and realizing that only having the single issue of being anti-Masonic ultimately divided the party and made it unable to truly gain traction as an important party in the United States. So this time, Weed was fundamental in ensuring that the Whigs stood for a wide range of issues and did not make abolitionism their only cause. Weed was a hugely influential part of the Whig movement, and one of the most outspoken white abolitionists in the country. But not all Whigs were so staunchly abolitionist. For example, Buffalo's Millard Fillmore was a Whig, but he was willing to be more accommodating to the pro-slavery causes in order to preserve the Union of the United States. And it led to a rift between Weed, now based out of Albany, and Fillmore, who was based out of western New York. But it was Weed who was far more influential than Fillmore. And when Fillmore was added to the presidential ticket of Zachary Taylor as his vice president, Fillmore knew that in order to win, they needed Weed's support. Fillmore was able to get Congressman Abraham Lincoln to travel to New York to personally convince Weed to support the Taylor-Fillmore ticket, despite Taylor being a slave owner himself. But Lincoln succeeded and convinced Weed to support Taylor and Fillmore. But Weed remained skeptical of Fillmore, and so in addition to supporting Taylor and Fillmore, he also helped his friend William Seward win a position as senator in order to balance out the federal appointments that were going to occur in New York State. Weed was powerful enough to have this kind of influence both statewide and nationally. William Seward was the one who would ultimately go on to purchase Alaska for the United States, but it's clear that a lot of Seward's opinions were driven by Weed, and why Weed and Seward were often considered kind of a unit together. Weed was so powerful that Fillmore agreed to consult on federal appointments with Seward at Weed's home in Albany. And almost immediately, Fillmore realized that his more conservative appointments were not going to fly in Weed's New York, and Fillmore became embittered against him as Weed continued to manipulate the government in favor of his more radical abolitionist views. 
when Fillmore tried to buy Weed's newspaper at the threat of opening a competing one, Weed refused, and Fillmore then went on to help fund a competing newspaper. When Fillmore tried to create a more conservative Whig party in New York, Weed blocked his efforts. Having always worked closely with Weed, Seward became the most vocal abolitionist voice in Congress, all to the chagrin of Fillmore's more conservative Whig faction. Fillmore presided over Congress as they fought relentlessly over slavery and how new states should be admitted to the Union. And in an odd twist, it turned out that Zachary Taylor, the slave-owning Southerner, was far more sympathetic to the anti-slavery cause than his Southern supporters thought, and he suggested that each new state should get to choose whether they were free or slave on their own, which upset Southerners and pushed them away from the Whig party. So the president, a Southern slave owner, was sympathetic to abolitionist causes to the point that abolitionist Whigs like Thurlow Weed elected him to president. But his vice president, Millard Fillmore, was a northerner who came from a free state regularly found sympathy for slave owners. And so, when Zachary Taylor died only a year into his term, it was now up to Millard Fillmore, as President of the United States, to mend the break with the Southern Whigs and stop the United States from spiraling into a civil war. Zachary Taylor was a war hero and Fillmore was just a frontier politician from New York. So Fillmore now had to prove himself strong enough to keep the nation together. So it's no wonder why Fillmore then took a more slave-owner-friendly approach than Taylor and helped shepherd through the historic Compromise of 1850, promoted by Kentucky's Henry Clay, which is primarily responsible for warding off the Civil War for another decade. It permitted California to enter the Union as a free state and outlawed the slave trade. But it came at a steep price for the abolitionists. Washington, D.C. was to permit slavery, but even worse was the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. The Fugitive Slave Act compelled federal law enforcement to deputize civilians, even in the North, to assist in the capture and return of runaway slaves, effectively giving Southern slave-owning states rights over Northern states, regardless of state law permitting them to be free. The captured black person would get no trial and steep punishments were to be extolled to any citizen who was against the law. So, when compared to the abolition of the international slave trade in America, it was true that abolitionists won that under the Fillmore presidency, but it was also clear that the slave owners got 
the better deal under Fillmore. With over 3 million slaves in the United States in 1850, slave owners would just breed their own slaves in-house in America. There is already no more need to get more from Africa. So the Compromise of 1850 then came at the cost of the Whig political party, as slowly they began to devolve into pro-compromise and anti-compromise factions, pitting the likes of Weed Allied Seward against the likes of Fillmore Allied Daniel Webster, one of the most prominent politicians of the era and Fillmore's Secretary of State. Despite being from Massachusetts and against slavery, claiming that it should forever and ever be deplored, Daniel Webster called for all Americans to abide by the Constitution and accept the Compromise of 1850, going as far as to call anyone refusing to help enforce it a traitor, guilty of, quote, treason, 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 and nothing else, end quote. So it was at this point upstate New York was fuming over the Fugitive Slave Act, and months before it was enacted, a group of 2,000 individuals came together just outside of Syracuse and held a Fugitive Slave Law Convention in Casanova funded by the wealthy radical abolitionist Garrett Smith. Garrett Smith is an interesting character on his own and another big player in the New York State abolitionist and women's suffragist movements. But it's also important to note that Garrett Smith was a millionaire because he was in the land speculating business and was able to snap up a lot of New York state land for cheap after being taken from the Haudenosaunee. At this fugitive slave law convention in Casanova, there is a famous picture where Frederick Douglass, as well as several other prominent people at the convention, are together. The convention was attended by almost 50 runaway slaves, the most famous of which were the Edmondson sisters, and also in attendance, were Isaac and Amy Post, of course. But it was now this sort of gathering with which Daniel Webster called treasonous. And he did this while standing in Syracuse, one of the centers of the abolitionist movement. Only a few months after Webster left Syracuse promoting Fillmore's compromise, a black cooper or barrel maker by the name of Jerry Henry found himself under an attempt of being apprehended while at his job. One reporter who witnessed the event saw Henry handcuffed run for his life between cords of wood that were stacked to be shipped along the Erie Canal, where he was then ultimately captured and beaten to the point of having his rib broken. And his captors then commandeered a passing wagon and brought him to prison, waiting to take him back to the South because he was an alleged runaway slave. The abolitionists of Syracuse came together, and they were led by an ex-slave named Samuel Ward, 
who Frederick Douglass called the ablest man the country has ever produced. Ward told the growing numbers, quote, Fellow citizens, we are here in the most extraordinary circumstances. We are witnessing such a sight as, I pray, we may never look upon again. A man in chains, in Syracuse. They say he is a slave. What a term to apply to an American. How does this sound beneath the pole of liberty and the flag of freedom? End quote. Ward went further. He went as far as to point out the crowd's responsibility for voting Taylor and thus Fillmore into office. It was even said that Garrett Smith was in attendance as Ward worked up the crowd, and around midnight, over 2,000 individuals armed themselves and overpowered the guards at the prison and rescued Jerry Henry, who hid him away and tended to his wounds until they could secret him away to Canada. And, therefore, after Ward's involvement in the rescue of Jerry Henry, he too had to escape to Canada. This was the acrimony between weed-backed abolitionist Whigs and Fillmore-backed conservative Whigs, which left the party to hemorrhage seats, even in areas where they were popular. Even when Fillmore used restraint by making sure to only fill vacant federal appointments and not removing any of the weed-backed appointments, his own conservative Whig allies found him soft, and Weed allies only saw their appointments slowly being replaced by Fillmore. As Fillmore's fated presidential term in office came to a close, Weed personally worked against him and got the Whig party to nominate Old Fuss and Feathers military legend Winfield Scott who would ultimately go on to lose against the Democrat, Franklin Pierce, for president. The Whigs would never recover from this infighting, and never put another president in office again. The 1850s were dominated by Democratic presidents Pierce and Buchanan, who resolutely enforced the Fugitive Slave Act and were far more supportive of the Southern slave-owning causes, which continued to hold the Union together, while Northern abolitionists began to face national scrutiny under the Democrat regime. The passage of the Kansas-Nebraska Act was a new low for Northern abolitionists, and Southern Whigs supported it. It was clearly time for a new political strategy. As for Millard Fillmore and his conservative Whigs, he had already moved on to find support with the Know-Nothing Party, also considered the first third party of the United States, as it garnered even more power than Weed's anti-Masonic party earlier that century. Initially called the American Party, the Know Nothing Party is remembered as a party focused on nativism, and they were distrustful of the torrent of immigrants coming from overseas from places like Ireland, Germany, and Italy. 
They feared a Catholic conspiracy to overthrow the United States. And they were called the Know-Nothings because if you were to ask them about their party and what they stood for, they were bound by oaths of secrecy to not share any of it. So they would just proclaim to know nothing. And this was the very sort of secrecy that B.T. Roberts stood against and said would lead to evil. And it was what the anti-Masonic party warned about decades earlier. The party wasn't of Southern origin, though, but instead was born right out of New York City and was the result of a gang leader and a silversmith working together to stoke evangelical American-born fear of the other. The silversmith was Thomas R. Whitney, who wrote a long defense of nativism and stated, quote, what is equality but stagnation, end quote. But even bigger was Bill the Butcher, William Poole, who led the Bowery Boys, a nativist group that inspired Martin Scorsese's film, Gangs of New York. There is an argument that the Bowery Boys weren't as big of an unlawful gang as they were later sensationalized out to be, but what is known is that at a bar one night, Poole ran into the Irish heavyweight champion John Morrissey, and insults were exchanged, and the police were called and the disagreement was broken up. Morrissey had even recently lost a bare-knuckle boxing match to Poole from a recent challenge and went home that night and did not return. But Poole did return, and one supporter of Morrissey ended up shooting and ultimately killing Poole a week later. As Poole languished before he died, he talked about his pride as dying like a true American. A quarter of a million people turned out for Poole's funeral, and they gushed with American pride, and know-nothing candidates were winning seats all over the country. The know-nothing party was Fillmore's chance to rise to the presidency legitimately, this time on the rising star of the know-nothing party. But at the same time as the know-nothings seemed to be ready to overtake the Whig party, Weed and his allies were hard at work. When I was researching to determine the origins of the Republican Party, it's not exactly perfectly clear. But there is at least one rumor that Weed and a couple of other newspaper printers were at the heart of the Republican Party. It's hard not to see how Weed wasn't at the core of it with how much power he influenced in New York State and the Republican Party being born out of the state. Weed and his allies dissolved the Whig Party in New York and united free soil abolitionists, disillusioned Democrats that were fed up with the corruption of Tammany Hall in New York City, they were called the Loco Foco. They also united progressive Democrats called barn burners and what were called conscious Whigs that stood against slavery. And 
even some members of the Know Nothing Party itself were torn off because all of them agreed on one thing. They called it free labor, and they contrasted it directly to slave labor. This was the brand new Republican Party, and it was going to stand for one single issue, the abolition of slavery, and it worked. The 1856 presidential election saw the remnants of the Whig Party face off with Millard Fillmore representing the Know Nothings and California Senator John C. Fremont being the first Republican nominee for president. Of course, both lost as the Democrat juggernaut continued to dominate, giving James Buchanan 174 electoral votes. But the Republicans didn't do too badly, earning 114 electoral votes in nearly all of the northern states. Fillmore and his know-nothings only won the state of Maryland, with eight electoral votes. With the topic of slavery raging across the Union, the nativist Know-Nothing Party support evaporated, and the upstate New York abolitionist Republican cause rallied a new moral fervor in the nation. And by the time the 1860 election rolled around, it was now the Democrats who had fallen to infighting splitting the presidential vote between three candidates, while the northern and western states unanimously voted for only one, the first Republican president, Abraham Lincoln. Even Abraham Lincoln constantly consulted Thurlow Weed, who regularly criticized him, but Lincoln always was careful to seek his counsel, placating him even as the Civil War raged on. Such was the importance of the printer, who got his start in Rochester. Lincoln was said to have received counsel from Weed on the Emancipation Proclamation before he made it. Weed knew how to play the game of 19th century politics and was one of the most influential men of his era. But knowing he had his start in Rochester, in near poverty, he would have been keenly aware of how the Whigs began there by uniting the disagreeing wealthy factions into one party with the support of a printer, setting aside small differences for a larger Christian aim. Weed is by no means a one-dimensional heroic character, but in many ways he did, on a national level, what was first demonstrated in Rochester, and maybe more than any other single individual, helped steer the nation to a war for the abolition of slavery. And so, it was Isaac and Amy Post of Rochester who were exactly the sort of people who risked their own safety and security during the years of the Fugitive Slave Act to house runaway slaves and help them reach Canada. Amy Post later recounted that she estimated that Rochester helped move about 130 ex-slaves to freedom to Canada per year. 
An obituary of Amy Post describes her as becoming convinced, quote, that many of her deprivations were due to the narrow-minded prejudices which grew out of misguided religious zeal and fanaticisms, end quote. So the Posts also supported the women's suffrage movement and attended the now-famous Seneca Falls Convention in 1848. Henry B. Stanton began writing in Rochester for the printer Thurlow Weed, and he married the cousin of millionaire land speculator Garrett Smith, Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Smith allegedly gave away enough money to the abolitionist cause to be equivalent to about a billion dollars in today's money, and was a major funder of Douglas's North Star newspaper. Smith himself housed fugitives for the Underground Railroad. In 1848, he even ran for president under the Liberty Party for the abolition of slavery, a precursor to the Republican Party less than a decade later. Smith was often conflicted because he did not believe in using violence to achieve his ends, but he realized that, at least on the topic of slavery, persuasion would not be enough to change the course of action. And he believed that there was no other way to end slavery than by funding a violent insurrection like he did with John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry. One writer who worked for Frederick Douglass at the North Star claimed that he had allowed John Brown into Frederick Douglass's office one day and even overheard Douglass refuse to help him in the violent insurrection and advised Brown against it. Despite this, it was found out that Douglass had an association with Brown and Douglass was also compelled to leave the country just as Samuel Ward was, causing Douglas to leave Rochester for good. But ultimately, Douglas's body was brought back to Rochester and buried in the Mount Hope Cemetery there. So, Elizabeth Cady Stanton grew up in the burned-over district, married an abolitionist husband, and together they traveled as part of a larger group of 40 individuals to England to the World Anti-Slavery Convention in London, where eight women were then segregated from the men. When they demanded to be seated with the men as equal representatives, the embarrassed hosts of the Anti-Slavery Convention tried to use national tradition to mask their unequal treatment of women. Afterwards, Elizabeth Cady Stanton helped organize the Women's Rights Convention at Seneca Falls in 1848, and it would be no surprise then that it was done at a Wesleyan Methodist church, much like Benjamin Titus Roberts would have been a part of. About 300 women attended, as well as about 40 men, including Frederick Douglass, who reported on it in his North Star newspaper, while many other publications of the time refused. 
Other important women at the convention included Lucretia Mott and Amelia Bloomer, both of whom are critical to bringing equality for women both socially and politically. Susan B. Anthony, who was living in Rochester at the time and even had family members that attended the convention, regarded it at first with amusement. Anthony, like everyone else, was a moral crusader in the realm of temperance reform. But when she was told that the women were meant to listen and not speak at a temperance convention, she began to appreciate the cause and befriended Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Ultimately, Anthony would be imprisoned for voting in Rochester, becoming a celebrated hero for enduring prison for the cause of women's rights. Women would not have the rights they have today if it wasn't for the radical movements that were driven by faith in what was believed to be right by the evangelical New Yorkers. So when we consider all of these different things, whether it's the Fourier movement by Benjamin Fish, the abolitionist movement, the relationship of the Posts and Frederick Douglass, underneath the national politics of the time, Rochester and upstate New York was fundamental in driving the country through the 19th century and bringing us into the United States of America that we mostly know today, including the creation of the Republican Party. And today, we also see similar issues that were going on a decade or so before the Civil War, such as the rise in nativism and a lot of talk about what it means to be an American, but not a lot of inclusiveness to people who were not already in a privileged position in the United States. While today in the United States we often still live under a lot of the ideals of the upstate New Yorkers in and around the burned-over district, I also couldn't help but talk about a burned-over district religion that now is stronger than ever in the 21st century. So I want to close out by talking a little bit more about Mormonism. I've noticed a couple of articles recently come out, one of which was done by The Verge and the difficulties that come with trying to leave the Mormon church and a lot of the movements and issues around that. To me, I see a lot of echoes of these other 19th century religious movements in Mormonism, that communal attitude of the Shakers or the Oneida community or even the Foyer Utopias. Because in this Verge article, which is really well written, they describe the feeling of what it's like to be included in the church those small moments where people make it a point to come and check on you, have a relationship with, spend time with you, and then suddenly when you decide to leave the church, they will still say hi to you, but the warmth that was there is now gone. The idea that there is an otherizing of people who leave the community. 
they go on to tell the story of an individual who decided to step back from the Mormon church when he heard that bishops were allowed to conduct one-on-one interviews with minors about sexual matters. He was abused himself as a child, and he saw this as problematic. Also, if we compare it to the Catholic Church, which a lot of things about the Mormon structure is comparable to the Catholic Church, there is a lot of room to have abuse take place when you have these types of private meetings. They also go on to discuss how there are a lot more people interested in leaving Mormonism because of all the things that they find out about Mormonism. The article describes it as the internet or Google giving results that make Mormons question their beliefs. But the reality is is that a lot of these things have always been true about Mormonism, but the LDS Church has really made an effort to hide the things that are very controversial and, like I've said in God in the Frontier, almost use lawyer-like precision to try and obfuscate everything. The article talks about how revelations like how Smith had 30 wives and he married married women and even had a wife as young as 14 are things that people are starting to realize now that lead them to want to leave the LDS church. But the way that the Mormons often phrase it is that the search results aren't coming out uh, in a way that paints them in a good light, but at the same time, It's not really Google search results or the internet that's the problem, but it is a lot of these foundational principles that Mormonism still holds that are turning people off because they often do disrespect other people, especially Native Americans, in their foundational practices of what Joseph Smith taught with the Book of Mormon. So couple this with the revelation that recently came out of a whistleblower who worked for a Mormon investment firm associated with the LDS Church. His name is David A. Nielsen, who previously managed the church's investment firm Ensign Peak Advisors for nine years. He said that it was a clandestine hedge fund and that there is over $150 billion that the LDS Church is hoarding away. I mentioned this briefly before this revelation came out and that it was known that the LDS Church was really accruing a large reserve of money. But the number 150 billion now makes them the richest church in America. And with Nielsen's whistleblowing, we find out that they were using the church's nonprofit status in order to make for profit investments, including in an insurance company and building a mall, which the LDS Church readily admits that they invested and are using it to make more money with. It turned out that the LDS Church and their investment firm, Ensign Peak, were using shell companies to hide a lot of these transactions. And in a 60 Minutes interview of the whistleblower and the LDS Church, The LDS Church holds 
As usual, it's cards close to its chest. And when the 60 Minutes interviewer talks about concerns about the secrecy of their organization, the LDS representative said that he preferred to use the term confidential, to which the interviewer replied, what's the difference? And the LDS representative said it was a matter of perspective. He felt that if people knew how much money they had, they would then try and tell the church what they should do with their money when they should be the only ones to decide that. The 60 Minutes expose interviewed a former IRS official named Phil Hackney, who said that it's likely that the IRS was not going to take any action against the LDS Church. He said, quote, The political risk is so great that it comes with real danger. At the same time, there's a real risk to the rule of law if the IRS doesn't come in and enforce those rules. End quote. After having written God in the Frontier and learning about the rise of Mormonism, and seeing where the LDS Church is today, where it's almost to the point of rivaling the Catholic Church in financial power, it makes me question what the purpose of holding vast sums of wealth within a religion is for. To the whistleblower, David Nielsen, he only could see all the good that was lost by the investment firm constantly taking in money and never spending it to help people. Since I initially wrote God in the Frontier, the Supreme Court has changed to a conservative supermajority in the United States who now looks a lot more friendlier on blending the divide of the separation of church and state allowing churches to have tax-exempt status while at the same time functioning like a business or a company, basically giving any Christian religious organization an advantage over regular businesses because they don't have to be taxed. And as we can see currently with the IRS's inaction to Nielsen's whistleblowing, it's unlikely that they will ever be held accountable even when they are doing something fraudulent. Once again, we're seeing corruption come in at the edges of religion and even start to drive a lot of the decision-making. And it's not just in Mormonism. I used Mormonism as a mirror to all other religions. And I've also pointed out places and locations and people who didn't espouse those more corrupt methods, and that we have to be discerning enough, especially in the 21st century, to see when somebody who invokes religion is using it for a genuinely good cause or just using it to make some kind of profit. So this was my attempt at making a bonus episode. I hope you've enjoyed it and everything I've had to share with it. It was fun to make, and it didn't require the same amount of work as one of my books. Any kind of information related to this, I'd love to hear it, because maybe in the future, I'll do another bonus episode. 
but thank you so much. And I will be coming out with my next book in just about a week or two. So stay tuned and thank you for listening. listening to this episode of No Character Limit. Every episode, the sources that I used are located in the description if you would like to check them out. In addition, please consider liking, rating, and reviewing if you enjoyed this podcast as each one goes to help further the reach of this podcast for new people to hear. Each episode requires hours in research, writing, recording, and editing. So if you feel that what you just heard is worth a donation of any size, please go to the description and follow the links for that. Each donation comes with a free PDF copy of a writing piece of your choice, no matter the size of your donation, and you get a lot of extra features with that, including a lot of the artwork and graphs and pictures, as well as the descriptions that I don't include in the podcast. If you would like updates for new episodes, you can follow No Character Limit at mastodon.world. And finally, if you have a question, comment, or even a correction, please feel free to reach out at nocharacterlimit at protonmail.com. Thank you again for listening.